welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam Doorman, the provocateur. We're off to a a flying start. That's right. We're soaring, baby. Um, well, Cam, this is usually the bit where I ask you what we're covering this week, but I think it's best if we just sing it. (laughs) Okay, let's go for it. (laughs) All right. Three, two, one. Condor Man. Okay, I'm interested to hear as much information you have about this film, but let's get the letterbox synopsis out of the way of this fever dream of a film. Spread your wings, Scott. Condor Man. An action adventure romantic comedy spy story. <laughs> I'm on board so far. <laughs> we have there's a pause, uh, and then it continues. Comic artist and writer Woody performs a simple courier operation for his friend Harry, who works for the CIA. But when he successfully fends off hostile agents, he earns the respect of the beautiful Natalia who requests his assistance for her defection. Woody uses this request as leverage to use the CIA's resources to bring his comic book creation, Condor Man, to life to battle the evil Krokov. Wow, that's a fairly... That's a, that's a lot of uh, explanation for a 90-minute Disney comedy. I think I'm just going to stick with an action-adventure romantic comedy spy story. That's the best tagline you could ever hope for. I wouldn't. I wouldn't try and confuse this film anymore. Mm-hmm. No, no. Um, now I know neither of us have seen the film before, Cam. Yeah, um, I do have a bit of an experience though with Condor Man as a young man. Um, <laughs> so back in the day, any kid nowadays, any young person listening to this podcast will not understand what I'm talking about at all. But once upon a time, if you were a fan of comic book stuff or comic book culture. Um, Your avenues for movies were very slim. You had the Richard Donner Supermans. If you go way back, there's a lot of old serials or even some like hour-long comic book films. There's like Dick Tracy movies or one Superman movie. Um, But that's like the old black and white stuff. I didn't want to watch that so much as a child. So you were always kind of fiending for comic book characters on the big screen beyond, you know, Superman and Batman. And I remember seeing commercials for Condor Man as a kid and my eyes just lighting up and I was like I have to see this movie I need to see Condor Man I have nothing else I need Condor Man and I never managed to see it it was never on I never managed to tape it and so I've lived a life of regret and I feel like the choice to watch it this week has really helped repair a crack in my life thus far I mean do you think you would have flown to new heights if you'd seen it as a kid um I think I would have, yes. I think I would have found a place to nest, yes. Um, The thing about this movie is, and we'll talk about it in a second about what we thought of it now, but I have to believe that had I seen this when I was 11 years old or 12 years old or something, I would have really been into it. So, you know, I mean, The Rocketeer came out in 91, so I guess maybe if I'd compared The Rocketeer to Condor Man, I would have been a little disappointed. But nonetheless, uh, I would have been on board for Condor Man. Well, Cam, let me jump on your back as you spread your wings and tell us how this film even appeared on the screen. (laughs) I don't even know. (laughs) 
Uh, well, um, we did an episode recently on The Man with One Red Shoe, and that was a movie, you know, the development and creation of that movie was somewhat <laughs> shrouded in secrecy because no one cares. <laughs> That's kind of the case with Condor Man, but I can give you some definite details. So this was a Disney production, and um, it started life, it was inspired very loosely by a uh, story called Game of X by a writer named Robert Sheckley. And he was a novelist. He'd also written a story that was adapted into the movie Free Jack from 1992, the Mick Jagger, Emilio Estevez um, sci-fi action movie. We actually referenced that in our Born Legacy episode, weirdly enough. Free Jack, really making a comeback on the Spy Hards podcast. <laughs> Jack Hards? <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, Game of X, this story, they say loosely adapted, and I want to read the description of this story and see if um, anything jumps out to you. Here it is. All secret agents need to look out for William Nye, now known as Agent X. His recruitment was simple, and his legend is brilliant but unearned. Somehow, he thinks he's the best there is, and we all know how pride goeth before a fall. The master of sci-fi hilarity and biting social satire creates a spy world that has gathered praise from the greats of the genre. I don't know. It sounds, <laughs> like, that... it sounds like the guy who wrote it is himself, I would say. <laughs> but I'm guessing there's just maybe the loose connection of like um, kind of a bumbling dude winding up as a some sort of hero, Agent X in this case. I'm guessing that's what they took, like a very, very simple concept. Yeah, I can, I, I can kind of see the whole guy with no skills getting the job. That, that 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 sounds of it maybe, but that's about it. Yeah, and they say it's a social satire um, set in sort of the spy world. I don't know about the social satire with Condor Man, but it's definitely trying to do a bit of satire. So I, I guess that's maybe what the connection was. Um, nonetheless, they ha- um, bring in another writer named Mark Sturdivant. He had written one episode of Beretta. Um, then he wrote Condor Man. And then he didn't really write ever again. <laughs> So his career was much like Condor Man's first jump off the Eiffel Tower. Except there was a safety shoot because he did become a second assistant director on the TV series Frasier for a fairly long run. So he was okay in the long haul. He was finally able to afford some tossed salad and scrambled eggs. (laughs) That's right. So they brought on um, director Charles Jarrett, who had worked in a lot of TV He'd also done um, a couple of films, Anne of the Thousand Days, starring Richard Burton, as well as Mary Queen of Scots, very much like period era costume dramas, which I feel like was an ill fit perhaps for Condor Man. <laughs> what, his outfit? No, those were period specific. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to go to that period, thanks. Yeah, um, Jarrett didn't work a ton afterwards, at least on anything that notable. He did do a a Nicolas Cage drama called Boy in Blue a handful of years later, but not a lot really post-Condor Man of note. Um, So one of the big things was um, the exec vice president in charge of production, Ron Miller, was determined that the female lead in this movie would be the sexiest in Disney history. Like, this was really the mountain he was staking his flag on. Like, this was a big deal. (laughs) That is such a 1970s, 1980s sentence. Yeah, no kidding, right? And so he pursued Raquel Welch. She turned it down. 
And so that's how Barbara Carrero was cast. She was, I guess, somewhere down the line in terms of casting and um, um, auditions and what have you. So I don't know. Like, I would say that uh, Ron Miller, this was his mission in life. And Ron Miller was diehard on Condor Man because this man had plans for um, like uh, a sequel immediately like he had greenlit the sequel idea or at least authorized the sequel before this movie had even come out he was also expecting to make a series of them so ron miller was really willing to die on the hill that is condor man uh, well it did die so yeah <laughs> um couple other notables with this production remy julian was the stunt supervisor on this film and um he is very notable because he'd worked on a spy film called spies um, a handful of years earlier, which was kind of a comedy spy film, but he did the driving stunts on a few Bond films you may have heard of: For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, View to a Kill, License to Kill, and Goldeneye. Yes, I think I've come across him at some point. Yeah, yeah, he seems a little familiar. He also did stunts on the movie Double Team, starring John Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman, which we will tackle in the future. <laughs> now that one, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, you've got some definite pedigree there in the stunt department. And the effects were done here at Pinewood Studios. And they used Colin Chovers to try to achieve some of the effects in this. He had worked on Superman 1 and 2. Um, and I don't know if anyone, you know, the younger people out there would remember this. But the big, uh, you know, tagline for Superman, the motion picture, was, You will believe a man can fly. Scott, did you believe a condor man could fly? <laughs> no. No, uh, not not without a few uh, harness and a few strings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know that this was quite on the level of Superman, but also, uh, you know, there was no Richard Donner in sight on Condor Man, so maybe that's part of the reason. They said that when they were putting together the flying rigs, they were initially tried to fit um, Michael Crawford into Christopher Reeves' like uh, mold suit, and it didn't work. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> I just like the idea of them looking at those two guys and being like, yeah, the same mold should work. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Sure. No, he is. He's a spindly little guy. That's a, that's a different thing altogether. Definitely is. Um, and so that's sort of the production. There's not a lot. I mean, I can totally believe this was a pretty easy to put together production. There's obviously some stunt stuff that would have been a lot of work. But in terms of just kind of day-to-day shooting on this, it seems like it would be fairly relaxed. I don't think a lot of people were losing sleep at night over Condor Man. Um, so, in terms of box office, <laughs> Condor Man did not do well. <laughs> okay. Condor Man, it's so strange in that there's a handful of Disney movies like this. It's not exclusive to Condor Man, where when you go to look them up on box office charts of the year, they aren't there. And I don't know why that is, if Disney was preventing their grosses from being finalized or what. Like, it's really strange. I've come across this a few times now. But everything I could find on Condor Man says it cost about $14 million and made about that. So that's not great. <laughs> and they they said um, that it. I found an old Variety report that said Condor Man lost them $9.5 million. So I'm assuming in terms of marketing and all that, it, it would have lost money. So that seems to be about the deal, which was not great. It's not, I don't have an official number on the top 200 because again, it doesn't show up, but it would have landed somewhere around the 50s. Oh, so if the number you have is correct, it would have been around about the 50 mark for the year. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. 
Yeah, just very strange. I don't know why that is, why it's not listed, because it was a wide release for the most part. Like, it wasn't a, you know, independent, small little release that went nowhere. It actually played in theaters, especially to make $14 million. Like, that's playing, you know, quite a few places. I mean, do the House of Mouse have that kind of power? <laughs> they do now. Yeah, they got Condor Man into every single screen possible. <laughs> the whole world <laughs> could only watch Condor Man, and they chose not to. <laughs> I think I'll skip it this week, darling. Yeah. <laughs> so the top three for 1981, number one, you had Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number two, On Golden Pond, co-starring Dabney Coleman. And at number three, you had Superman 2. Um, I think it's fascinating to think of Condor Man coming out the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just like the budget version. I mean, it's really budget, right? Like you look at what Raiders achieves or even Superman 2 and then you hold up Condor Man next to it, it's bizarre. Well, even Superman 4, the quest for peace, looks better than this. Oh, I don't know if I can go out on that uh, on that line well, there. At least you can't see the cables. That's true. It's funny, I actually found a Siskel and Ebert um, review from that time period. Roger Ebert didn't do a print review for Condor Man, but they did a review on their show. And, like, Gene Siskel was outraged about spotting the cables like that's all he talked about throughout the review he's just like i can't believe i'm watching a movie with cables in it in a film that wants you to suspend your disbelief and think that this guy can invent laser guns you've got to get the cables out and not make it look like this man is clearly suspended i like the way he uh, i'll get into it later i'll I'll save this (laughs) sure sure So um, a few other notables. At number eight, For Your Eyes Only, the Bond film came out this year. At number 42, Eye of the Needle. the um, I believe it's a Donald Sutherland film. Another spy film, actually. And um, this was a very notable year for Disney. Disney, it's so crazy to think of because um, nowadays, Disney is... Well, they basically own everything. They are our overlords. We all bow down to Disney. But back in the day, Disney was really struggling. Um I mean, when they're making Condor Man, maybe that's not a surprise, but <laughs> 1981 was like a really bad year for them. They put out Fox and the Hound, which did well. It was like number 14 for the year. But then they put out this like string of other movies that were real bombs. They had at number 45, The Devil and Max Devlin. Number 54, Dragon Slayer, which um, starred Mark Singer. It was sort of a, you know, one of those many sword and sorcery movies that arrived somewhat... Um, you know, around that period. There's a ton of them out there. Sure, yep. Conan falls around that time too, I think the next year. Tons of those movies at the time. And then also, way off, who knows where it landed because I couldn't even find box office stats. They put out a movie called Amy, which was about a teacher um, teaching speech to deaf children. I have no idea where this movie landed, but again, it was another Disney production this year that just tanked, like just went nowhere. So it's so strange when you look now you know, when we, whenever we cover movies from probably like, what, 2012 onwards, Disney movies occupy a lot of the top slots on those top threes when we talk about the box office for that year. But back in the day, like Disney was really struggling, especially in like the 70s, 80s. I, I will say I, I'm not going to be in Condor Man's defense necessarily, but Disney wouldn't take a punt on this film now. No, no, not a chance. Not At least they tried. T- Sure, and I can totally understand why they did because Disney um, historically always struggled to find movies that appealed to like young boys, and I guess that's probably what this was. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, and um, I mean, it clearly didn't really work. But 
it's very telling that way further down the road, they're buying Star Wars and making, you know, a Tron movie and buying Marvel. Like they finally gave up on original things and just said, just start mining the archives or, you know, buying up new properties. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. A um, couple other notes just for uh, Condor Man. Writer Linda Lane claimed Condor Man was similar to her cartoon character Laser Lady and filed a $16 million lawsuit at, for, against Disney for copyright infringement, unfair competition, and unjust enrichment. I could not find an outcome to that um, lawsuit, so I'm guessing they just kind of quietly paid her outside of court or something. Well, didn't they have a character called Laser Lady? They did, yeah. That's why uh, the lawsuit happened, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, maybe that ate into its profits. <laughs> That's where all the money went. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 200, 200 million to this random cartoonist. Yeah. Uh, another thing, when Marvel was acquired by Disney in 2009, Amazing Spider-Man editor Stephen Wacker lobbied to have Condor Man brought into the Marvel Universe. Is that along with um, Howard the Duck? <laughs> well, Howard the Duck actually is a Marvel property. Oh yeah, I know. I just thought like if you're going to bring Howard the Duck into the scene, you might as well have Condor Man flying over the top. That's a good point, actually. That would be a fun pairing. Um, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm sure Stephen Wacker was just having a lot of fun with that idea, but I would not be against working Condor Man into some of the more irreverent Marvel comics. That could have been fun. Hey, Michael Crawford's still here. That's right. Um, and also, Condor Man makes a cameo in a Pixar short called Toy Story Tunes Small Fry from 2011. Um, it centers around a support group meeting for discarded kids' meal toys, and there is a Condor Man toy there. Does that mean Condor Man was like a McDonald's toy thing, or is that just... The... No, I, I think they're just joking about that. I don't I don't remember. I mean, I wasn't alive. Actually, I guess I was alive in 1981, but I don't know if McDonald's did like big movie crossover merchandising that at that point. Maybe they did. I don't know. Well, Star Trek The Motion Picture was their first one. Oh, okay. So that's 1979. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess, Scott, you and I have to get on eBay and search for Condor Man uh, McDonald's merchandise to see if it exists. Zero results. <laughs> no one has ever searched for this before. <laughs> Please close your laptop and go outside. <laughs> We're calling IT. Something is clearly wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that about sums up Condor Man, the journey that was. <laughs> well, Cam, let's wander into this restaurant in Istanbul and talk about Condor Man. Yes, it's time. Yeah, I think it is. And I mean, the, I wrote down a, a, a tagline for this film that they didn't use. Okay. I think it, it's pretty good. Condor Man, pretty fly for a white guy. That would have been really ahead of its time. Yeah. Even the song works with it. It could have been part of the soundtrack. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> The Offspring, uh, maybe that's what inspired them when they wrote the song. <laughs> I've just been watching a VHS from Condor, man. Yeah. <laughs> if you re-release this movie, you might hear that. They might use that. Uh, that's with the Howard the Duck crossover that they're going to make now because of us. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah infinitely more interesting at this point but okay okay i i had didn't have the connection to this film that you did i hadn't heard of it and i think this was your choice of a film yeah uh so i was quite keen to to tackle it i have watched it twice now and i have so many questions (laughs) 
So I, I will preface my review with this. I wasn't feeling that well the day that I watched it. I had a, a bit of a headache, a bit of a fever. So I thought maybe when I watched it the first time, I was just imagining some of this stuff. Yeah. But then I went back and watched it the next day. Uh, no, absolutely exactly how I remembered it. <laughs> what this is, is this film? Um. Well, so... <laughs> Are you coming down on the positive? <laughs> I don't know where I'm coming down. I, I I'm drifting gently into the River Seine right now. Like it's just like I'm being I'm being like yeah. Uh, over, overall, it's clearly a kids' film. Wait, what? <laughs> I thought this was a mature film for our thinking adults, the most sophisticated of audiences. <laughs> I didn't know going into it that it wasn't an adult-focused film because most spy stories don't really go for kids. No, that's true. In fact, it's kind of bumming me out we haven't yet come across, not to spoil anything for this movie, but a kid's spy film that is really like a classic. You know what I mean? Like one where we're like, slam dunk for the knock list. Um, I'm hoping there's some out there, but not a lot are jumping to mind. So... <laughs> I, you know, I know we've got a number of them on our list to, you know, come up in the future, but boy, I'm wait, I'm hoping we find that one that's an obvious, just great spy film for kids. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if that happens. But back to Condor Man. <laughs> you just think about the opening of this film, right? You've got this weird um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit moment. Right. Of the cartoon interacting with the rest of the film. I can't remember Who Framed Roger Rabbit's after this, right? Yeah. Uh, we just actually covered that film on the Chicklet podcast, so check that out. Yeah, really fun episode. Um, Roger Rabbit, little bit higher level of artistry than Condor Man. But then it cuts to like him on the Eiffel Tower, which the last time I saw that, I watched A View to a Kill recently. And I remember they had to jump through so many hoops to shoot on the Eiffel Tower. I think this film is probably the reason why. <laughs> I also think they heavily faked this. Do you reckon? Probably, right? I got the impression they did shoot it there. Although the thing with um, the Eiffel Tower was, I think it was more they had issues with View to a Kill in the terms of someone um, parachuting off of it. That was much more difficult. Um, Condor Man, I think they were probably maybe allowed to you know, shoot him standing on it, but I don't think they did that, him, the stuntman jumping off of it, probably at the Eiffel Tower, right? I guess not. I, yeah. It's just such a bizarre opening, because you think this, no one in their right mind thinks that they can make this thing fly yes so you instantly have to just sort of stand back and be like okay he's either got an issue upstairs or this film doesn't take place in reality it's a really strange movie um i found the first half of it almost felt like a naked gun movie and then the second half tries to take this character seriously uh it's a very strange mashup of these two things that I mean, you could say across the board, it's just a very light, goofy movie that I'm sure kids would enjoy. But in terms of, you know, analyzing it as a film, it is a weird clash in that the character undergoes a very different shift halfway through and the movie becomes an entirely different type of movie. So I will say just in terms of overall, I enjoyed the experience of watching Condor Man. It's not very good. <laughs> it's definitely not very good. But I kind of love these weird, uh, uh, very, I mean, almost surreal Disney live action films from the era. Um, my sister and I, during COVID, we did a whole Bond marathon where we were watching Bond movies every week. 
a certain point, we ran out of Bond movies. We covered them all. That's the pandemic's been going a long while, people. We had a, we had to jump on to other things, and so my sister and I have been doing a lot of kitschy 1970s, 60s Disney live action films. And last night we once again did one. We did the movie Gus about a Yugoslavian mule who can kick field goals. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the direct sequel to Condor Man. Right? And so we watched Gus, and then, you know, we finished that up, and then I had to go and watch Condor Man right after. So maybe the craziness of Condor Man (laughs) didn't feel quite as jarring because I just watched Gus, but this was very much a thing that Disney made these very strange, cartoony, weird movies for kids, and Condor Man, I think what I enjoyed about it was the spy spoofing stuff. You Mm -hmm. know, some of the stunts are pretty well done, and we'll dive into all that stuff later, but... It's not a good movie, but it's one I found fairly watchable. And I will say the 90-minute runtime really works in its favor. Yeah. I Overall, I didn't hate my experience of watching it twice. There was certain funny bits to take out of it, fun elements, fun scenes, fun stunts, like you said. And it definitely works as a kid's film who aren't paying that much attention to it and won't look at the cables hanging off of Condor Man. Yeah. But if you dig any deeper into this film, it just falls apart. <laughs> well, it really is kind of uh, nonsensical. <laughs> um, and it's just like the type of movie that, again, like I said, if I was like 10 years old or 11 years old, I would have been so into Condor Man. I would have thought it would have like be one of the coolest movies possible. I'm glad it didn't catch on because I think you would have had kids, you know, jumping off of the top of their buildings with flimsy wings. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like the old uh, Superman craze of the 1950s or whatever with the George Reeves show where they had issues with that, yeah. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah, it ha- I mean, I'm sure it was probably only a couple notable examples, but they got press at the time. Uh, I, I can understand that, uh, why kids would want to emulate their heroes. But yeah, there's a, and you said this before, there's that sort of tonality shift about midway through. Yeah. And you can really track it as well because it actually starts off quite well, apart from that iffy scene on the Eiffel Tower. You've got this guy, uh, your your hero of the film, Woody, played by Michael Crawford. He's a cartoonist, and he's staying with his friend in Paris, right, to get a feel for the for Paris itself and to draw a comic about Condor Man. And then, yeah, that, that's fine. And then his friend, who happens to work, I think, for the CIA, it's never really specified. Yeah, he was CIA. Okay, um, asks him to drop off some papers in Istanbul. Which, a bit question marky, but okay. And he gets there, he meets the love interest of the film, and he kind of stumbles his way through an action scene because he has no skills. Right, yeah. That's, you can kind of buy it. But then after that, like, he's designing rocket cars, uh, you know, dressing up in, in like a gypsy outfit. With, uh, there's a scene with that I really want to get into later. But at that point, the film just, I don't want to use the term, but it does jump the shark. Well, okay. So I felt like early in the movie when he's on that mission to drop off these papers in Istanbul, and I don't know why Harry wouldn't just do it. This character is very lazy, (laughs) but um, nonetheless, he sends his friend to do it. But it's kind of a, even at the time, you know, the CIA is just like, ah, this is kind of a nothing mission. Go drop off these papers. And he goes and does this bumbling mission, but it's played like a naked gun movie. Like, Mm -hmm. he's succeeding against all odds. He's doing goofy things. Like, he gets this flaming drink, and he can't blow out the flame. Then he smothers it with his hat. 
takes a drink and then blows fire across the bar. Like moments like that are very hot shots, naked gun like. And then he gets in a fight and he's just bumbling through this whole fight, taking out all these bad guys in ridiculous ways, a la naked gun. And you're like, okay, I get this movie. I understand exactly what it's doing. And I can't hold the insanity against it because it's clearly going for that spoof kind of model. Mm -hmm. But then he comes back and they want to send him on another mission to go and this contact he met there, Natalia, played by Barbara Carrera, she is going to defect. And so he's being sent back to bring her back. She's a KGB agent. And suddenly he becomes very competent. They're like, okay, this guy's going to design, yeah, like the Condor mobile, the Condor boat, um, Condor wings, all this sort of stuff. And he's going to go in disguises. And he may look goofy in the movie, but he's always very competent. And I could never figure out why that shift even happened. Like why set him up to be a bumbling idiot and then completely go backwards on that. It, it loses the humor at that point. Yeah, like the humor becomes more just laughing at how campy it is versus <clears throat> laughing at intentional comedic choices. You can see kids laughing at the, the fight scene in Istanbul because he's doing the old like, oh, I've got a ladder on my head and accidentally hitting the people behind me. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of Buster Keaton style of comedy. That Kids can understand that. Adults can understand that. It's fine. But then he just becomes James Bond. Yeah, like he's not a cool James Bond, but he has the sorts of skills. Like because there's in a whole chase, you know, where he's behind the wheel of the Condor mobile being pursued by all these like black race cars. And he's totally competent. He's like firing his lasers. He's using his gadgets. He's always like calm under pressure. Whereas that is not the case on that first mission. No, and I think if they kept up that awkwardness about him and the, you know, stumbling through the mission, that would have, I think, maybe made the film a bit better. Maybe. It would be more, in, like, you would give it more, maybe, credit for picking its tone and sticking with it versus what you get now. Which is an absolute mess. <laughs> How dare you! Let's just say he uh, it, it didn't fly too close to the sun. He's not Icarus. He got about halfway and then just splattered on the ground. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, it's kind of like the opening credits of the movie, which has the animated Condor Man flying around France and like smacking into things. It's kind of like that uh, <laughs> is what the movie does. Yeah, it just encapsulates that, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's a couple of like interesting scenes they do after that. I mean, the, the bit when they're in, in disguise in Yugoslavia, I wrote down, he's dressed as this, like an old man. He has this cane. And he says, oh, I don't, Condor Man doesn't use guns, but his cane is a gun. And then he proceeds to roll around the floor for five minutes as the, as the gun's shooting off and he can't control it. And That was, that, yeah, that was a little surreal. That was painful. It went on far <laughs> too long. That was a, a Will Smith in the tubes moment. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Wrestling the cane is the new <laughs> crawling around in tubes. <laughs> what do you say? Like, fastest cane in the West. It's a horrible one-liner. He has another one-liner. I can't remember, but it was equally bad. He does two in a row. I mean, I don't think kids would have laughed at that. Or adults. Uh, adult. It's the type of movie at that point. If you are an adult who's taken your children to this movie... I'm sure there's a lot of kids just running and screaming through the theater and whatever. And you're just sitting there stone faced watching these events transpire on screen. Just slowly crying into your uh, melted ice cream. <laughs> just a single tear rolling down your cheek. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, there's so much you could 
um, we could sit here for hours and talk about all these individual weird scenes they came up with. Mm-hmm. But as a, as a plot, as a story, it just doesn't work. There's nothing here that works. I guess. I mean, it's so simplistic that I could kind of go along with it in that I appreciated that Disney wasn't trying to make this a complicated plot. They just said, okay, he's got to go basically save Barbara Carrera. There's bad guys on his tail. They've got to jump across a few locations. And I did appreciate the glow popping aspect of this movie. I don't know if it's even glow popping, just country to country. But um, Mm. I just appreciated the changes in scenery. It felt like they were putting a little bit of effort. Um, This movie reminded me weirdly of From Russia With Love (laughs) in some ways. (laughs) So first and last time anyone makes that comparison. Yeah, it just feels a little similar with, you know, the female agent that's going to defect and uh, it's kind of a ruse and you've got the secret agent going there to save her. And, uh, you know, this kind of the locations are a little similar. You've got Istanbul showing up again. They're a little samey, but I appreciated the movie didn't spend a lot of time on them. Like it felt like it was pitched very comic booky. And when I say comic booky, this is very much the era when studio people looked at comic books and said, well, clearly they're dumb, so just make the plots dumb, because that's what comic book readers like. <laughs> well, they just assume it's for kids. Exactly. Like, this is the era where there was no respect whatsoever for comic book material, and so they would have just been like, well, it's just, you know, silly and stupid, so there you go. I, I was reading some reviews from this afterwards, and, and you mentioned um, Roger Ebert's review earlier. Um, this is from the New York Times. It came out at the, at the at that same time. And just a section I highlighted, and this is it. In in review of Condor Man, it is painless and chaste. It has a lot of beautiful scenery and beautiful clothes. There are worse things to watch while you eat popcorn. Okay. Yeah, I I, I think that's probably where I come down on it overall. It it didn't offend me. It wasn't Men no. in Black 2. No, no. We have yet to reach another movie that's as bad as Men in Black 2. This just, I, I feel like this actually could have been better, and that's what disappointed me more. Well, I just think, I mean, Charles Jarrett, the director, as I said, he's done a couple, um, like, costume dramas. That is not a comedy director. Like, that's not really his game. So maybe if they handed this material over to people that were a little more irreverent and had a little more comedic style, maybe that would have worked better, because I just don't know that this was the guy to make this movie. See, I would somewhat disagree with that assessment because in the beginning of the film, he does have some comedy moments. That, like you say, the Istanbul bar scene is funny. Yeah, you know what? I can't disagree with that. So maybe it was just more like he didn't have a good grasp on the tone throughout. Like that, or did Disney interfere? Like, did they want this movie to be more of a, I don't know, action movie for kids? Like, I'm just. I wish there was more written on the development of Condor Man, which is a sentence no one has ever said before in human history. But <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, like I would like to know kind of what happened because it just seems very strange that even on the script, you would be writing it to be that goofy early on and then completely shift out of that. You get little touches later on. You know, there's a sequence where they fall off these, these cables um, climbing the Swiss Alps. And then the two characters who fall land in the snow and it's these big outlines around them, you know, kind of the human cartoon outlines. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of a spoof moment, but the movie doesn't really acknowledge it the way it does those earlier scenes. I, as a side point, I did note down during that scene that I think uh, Richard Burton would have wished he had those uh, jet propelled cable car things. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I will say this though, in terms of the director, 
I found with Condor Man, there's a lot of action sequences in this movie. Um, you know, there's the scene where he's like flying, for example, or that m- uh, moment I just mentioned on the uh, climbing the Swiss Alps. He's not a very good action director, and I'm sure Second Unit did a lot of that. But nonetheless, there's not a lot of energy to his action, which I think also would have picked this up a lot more for, you know, grabbing kids. I just think there's like, there's a reason why Bond films haven't gone full Superman. He gets close. Yeah. But there's also a reason why superhero films don't really go full spy intrigue. And the closest we have for that is, is Captain America, maybe Winter Soldier. Until Black Widow comes out, yeah. Uh, if that does go full spy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just think it, it, it tried to be its own thing. It tried to make its own culmination of those two storytelling arenas. But I think it just didn't hit the mark. Yeah, and this is an era too where, I mean, yes, Superman has been a big hit, but I still think they're a little embarrassed by superheroes. I was actually really surprised watching this movie how much they backgrounded the superhero aspects. Like, he doesn't do the whole Condor Man suit stuff till near the end of the movie. I was actually really expecting it to be much more prominent in the picture. I was genuinely expecting uh, Oliver Reed's character of Krokov to chase him away from the Monte Carlo casino at the end. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. With his own like wingsuit because he's read all the comics by that point, so he's he's meant to be you know five steps ahead of this Woody character, this Condor Man. Uh, I I really thought we'd have like a aerial battle, a really badly staged one, but I thought we'd have that. Yeah, that is something that's set up and not really paid off is this whole Oliver Reed character reading all these comics because you'd think it would give him some sort of insight. Um, nope. Nope. Just gets blown up in, in a boat at the end. Uh, he actually jumped into the water. He survived. Sequel. <laughs> well, it does want to have a sequel, doesn't it? That ending. Yeah, and Ron Miller, the you know the VP or whatever who was overseeing the production of this, he was really into sequels, so it's possible. And I mean, look, Oliver Reed's a great actor. I would be totally down for a Oliver Reed uh, sequel to Condor Man, but uh, was not to be. Maybe that was a film where he gets his wings. Maybe. He would have to be a supervillain, right? If you're going to do a sequel? Sure. I mean, he's got the whole... He is a bad guy already. All you need to do is have him have a cave or... You know, he's going to unleash a nuclear weapon or something like that. I don't know. Does he become an animal-based superhero in the sequel? Well, what's the what's the animal kingdom's opposite of a condor? Like, what is their arch nemesis? Does the condor have a nemesis? To Google. Holy bobcats, Batman! I found the predators that will apparently pursue condors in the natural world. They are mountain lions, coyotes, and bobcats, of course. As well as the Golden Eagle will, um, I guess, pose a threat to condors. So there you have it. Which of these animals, mountain lion, coyote, bobcat, or golden eagle, is Oliver Reed going to become? I think Krokov, the golden eagle, has a nice ring to it. It does. Although, I'm for the comedic value, I'm kind of in favor of the bobcat. <laughs> <laughs> Just to see Oliver Reed like, going around on all fours. <laughs> yeah, in a bobcat outfit. <laughs> it will probably look better than Wonder Woman 84. Probably, yeah. He was the original Cheetah, although I, I think I think actually Cheetah probably came out in like the 1940s or something. But nonetheless, the first cinematic Cheetah. Uh, well, I think we're going off on a animal field tangent, so let's let's uh, bring it back. Well, to be fair, this is an animal film. It is. It is. Um, right. Let's tackle Michael Crawford. Yeah. <laughs> let's really get our talons into Michael Crawford. Sure. Sure. 
Now, I didn't know much about the guy before doing this, but doing my research before the recording, I found out that, you know, this guy was the first Phantom of the Opera. Uh, he was big in the UK. He was in a TV show called Some Mothers Do Have Them. Uh, that's still running basically now from like the 1970s. Uh, not things I'm familiar with, but yeah, he's still going. Yeah, my dad had a CD um, of Michael Crawford singing Broadway songs that I've heard many, many, many times in my life. And I will say his version of Phantom of the Opera is pretty badass. But I, so I was aware of him as a Broadway icon. Um, it actually surprised me when I looked up Condor Man for this podcast to actually see who the star was and realized it was him. Because initially I saw the name and just assumed it was another actor named Michael Crawford. And when I realized it was the same one, I was kind of surprised. But it is notable he doesn't do a lot of other... I don't know, like mainstream movies. He doesn't do a lot of non-musical or non-theatrical films post Condor Man. Um, he was notably um, in the movie Hello Dolly with Barbara Streisand a couple years before Condor Man, I think at the tail end of the 60s. And that movie's referenced a lot in the movie Wally, So it has a little bit of a resurgence there, but he is in that. So he has a history in movies, but not in things like Condor Man. But I'm very curious, Scott, what did you think of Michael Crawford's performance in this film? Oh, well, before I tackle that, I think I know the CD that your dad has, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret about it. Okay, yeah, let me know. So if you play that track of him singing the Phantom of the Opera song to the end, and let it, let it roll a bit longer, there's a secret track at the end, and it's okay. Michael Crawford just singing, Condor Man, over and over <laughs> again. Over and over <laughs> again. Uh, he, he pitched it, this is all his baby, really. Of course, of course. Yeah. No, I, I didn't know anything about the guy, but it, this definitely feels like a star vehicle built for him in a way. It's weird, though. Back in this sort of era, Disney would cast these leads that you're like, what? Like, Michael Crawford? I remember watching another movie with my sister called um, Unidentified Flying Oddball, which is sort of a, you know, comedy where, like, a, an astronaut goes back to, like, King Arthur's court. And, like, the star of that movie is an actor who really didn't go many places, but he went on to become a director and directed Happy Gilmore and a bunch of other Adam Sandler films. So it's like Disney has all these weird leads for their older films. Like Michael Crawford is a weird choice for a lead. Well, he didn't. Obviously, this guy you're talking about didn't reach the great heights of Michael Crawford. <laughs> um, I don't know. Does flying into space top uh, soaring um, You know, over France? I'm, I, I haven't seen this other film, but I have to believe it looked better than this. Uh, not by much. Okay. Uh, but overall, like his performance is is fine. He he puts his all into it. Yeah. Oh boy, I, I struggle here because I don't think he's good in this movie. Like No, no. Uh, I think he is somewhat decent when it comes to the bumbling Leslie Nielsen like comedy. I think he's pretty good. I mean, he's a theatrical actor. This guy is good at playing to the back of the stage, right? Like that yeah. is his skill set. It has to be. And he is one of the big, you know, personalities and actors on Broadway. So it makes complete sense. But when I'm watching him do sincere scenes with Barbara Carrera, I wanted to crawl out of my skin. <laughs> he just feels like a pantomime actor to me. Right. You know, and there's that scene of him driving in, in the van that looks like Tomata from the Cars films. <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, is, is, is Krakow your, your, your husband? And she's like, no. And he goes, oh, gee, that's uh, that's really great to hear. And you just think, what a, what a freaking nerd. The performance is very strange. Like, in terms of his line delivery, 
it's very weird. Like, I'm sure they just were telling him, you know, do like a comic book nerd, which of course would be such a stereotype in that era they would really be milking. But it was just like this weird one-tone performance where it never changed. No matter what he was saying to anyone, it always came across in the same kind of awkward delivery. Yeah. And, um, oh, I did have a question for you, Cam. I don't know if you have the answer from your research, but it's something that I noted down. And Hannah, who watched it with me the second time, also pointed out. Was he dubbed? Um, I don't think, no, I don't think he's dubbed. That's definitely his voice, but he may have done ADR on a lot of it. Who knows? But it just, there's scenes where he's like acting with uh, the James Hampton uh, character, Harry Oslo, who's the uh, the official CIA agent. And James Hampton just feels like he's in the room. It sounds like he's in the room, but everything Michael Crawford said just feels like it's someone else's mouth. Hmm. It is definitely his voice. But it, there's a there's always a chance with these types of movies, especially anything with effects and stuff, that they ADR'd a lot of it. it for me, that's another one of the things that pulled me out of the film. Is it, it didn't sound like the guy who was actually speaking. I feel like I was very forgiving at this point. There was so much else going on in terms of um, clumsy effects work and what have you that I was like, well, the voice thing ain't, ain't phasing me. <laughs> you were just so transfixed by the uh, spandex. Exactly, exactly. Uh, which is why I'm wearing it right now, Cam. Yeah, but he was just like Michael Crawford. Again, incredibly talented guy. This, I just don't think was his thing. And I think he knew it because the fact that he didn't do any other movies like this going forward shows he probably wasn't pursuing these types of roles and I don't think they were pursuing him either. And it's perfectly fine for him to be a a Broadway or West End actor, as we would say here, and not be an action star. It would have been more interesting, really, um, to cast him as like a Broadway actor who has to go and put on a performance and get through a spy scenario. I would buy that of him being really theatrical through spy situations versus this comic book angle. Um, I mean, this movie doesn't know anything about comic books whatsoever at all. <laughs> like it has no insight into this. It doesn't really seem to know anything about them. It even has a couple weird lines like, um, well, like the character um, of Woody says like he only wants to do things in his comics he can do in real life boy that would have really hampered the writers of green lantern well it's not even that it's the line he says afterwards where he goes kids never buy it if they're not doing it in real life now i'm sorry but i don't think anyone on this planet is powered by the sun no or spider-man silver surfer doctor strange these are all heroes who are around in the 60s um yellow the hulk hey man i've been working out (laughs) and he has another line that really grated on me where i can't remember what the exact setup was but they make reference to him going to new york or something or sending condor man to new york and he says oh like superman already has the big apple superman's in metropolis not the big apple (laughs) yeah i didn't get that either I, i assume it's just as you say they had no idea about comic book characters I'm guessing they're just jumping off of Superman the movie, which used some New York imagery in their Metropolis. I'm guessing that's what they were assuming. But again, this is a movie that just has absolutely no knowledge or understanding of comic books or comic book culture. And it's just kind of like filling in the gaps like, yeah, 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 yeah. Kids in their silly books, kids in their silly books. But, uh, this is what doesn't make sense to me, because you get a lot of these films where they kind of go, oh, what do kids want right now? What are they like? And you, uh, we were talking about Men in Black 2 back to that, funnily enough. It was like, oh, yeah, kids like Tool and Burger King and uh, Lara Flynn Boyd in Spandex. Hmm, yeah. Right? Lara Flynn Boyd, I should say. That makes sense. I get it. 
But kids weren't really into just Superman and James Bond at this time. They liked lots of other things that were far more approachable. Oh, totally. I mean, um, the 1970s is actually a pretty interesting time for Marvel comics. Kids are really into stuff like the Master of Kung Fu and a lot of the um, monster-based books. There's some really interesting things coming out of um, Marvel. I mean, that's when Luke Cage becomes a big character. It's not like Marvel had just faded into obscurity at this point. It was still a very strong creative force. I'm not exact. Oh, you know what? This is the DC Rebirth 2 where they really nailed down Batman in this era. And, um, you know, after the whole 60s camp phase, like comic books were doing interesting things in the 70s. And this movie does not care about that whatsoever. (laughs) Well, it's not even the comic book stuff. Like I'm saying stripped that away for a second. There was things that kids liked other than comic books. Sure. It's it's just weird they went down this tangent of trying to combine a a serious spy story because there is that running through it somewhere with this over-the-top superhero story and the campy action bits of James Bond. Well, it really feels like they're just like invest everything in spoofing more so Roger Moore, James Bond films. But I don't even know if you can spoof Roger Moore, James Bond films. Well, I think they, they do in quite a few films, but maybe not well. But can you spoof a Roger Moore Bond film? Because they're already pretty absurd. And Roger Moore is, you know, doing that eyebrow raise. Like, he recognizes they're absurd. I feel like you can spoof more some of the Conneries. You can definitely spoof some of the um, some of the um, um, Daniel Craig's going forward. But in terms of Roger Moore, there's always a jokiness to them already that it feels kind of weird to try to make a spoof movie about it. I suppose you could only spoof the people who want to be Bond at that point. So you can right. take the Mickey yeah. out of the fans, maybe. But you're right; it, the 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 Roger Moore films themselves wink at the camera. Well, like there's a car chase where they get in like a small yellow car in this, and that car looks a lot like the small yellow car. I think it's like a Citroen or something. I don't even. I'm so bad with cars, so forgive me, people, if I screw up the names of cars because I really don't know. But um, there's the small yellow compact car that Bond has the chase with. Um, at the start of For Your Eyes Only, which came out this same year. And I'm watching these two scenes being like, I don't know, they're both about the same in terms of tone. In fact, I think the Condor Man one might be a little more exciting. Probably, but then it's also more outrageous because there's laser beams involved. That's true. Although the yellow car didn't have the laser beams. That's the Condor Mobile, which was a whole other level of badassery. Uh, and of course, the uh, is it the Condor Boat? Condor Ski? Condor Foil, maybe? Condor Foil, hmm. We're putting more thought into this film than they did. Yeah, I was waiting for him to actually say out loud, like, get onto the condor foil or something like that. Like, why not have fun with those sorts of uh, conceits? At that point, you're already well in the film. But, you know, they, he's, he's, he's managed to learn how to fly. <laughs> I believe that man could fly. Uh, I really wish he touched the sky so he could burn. <laughs> yeah, like an Icarus thing? That would <laughs> yeah. have been interesting. Yeah, that, that's a nice way to end the film. But um, okay, let's let's go over to maybe some actors with a little bit more caliber in terms of acting, uh, which is Oliver Reed. Yeah, Oliver Reed, one of the greats. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who are younger will know him from Gladiator mm-hmm. um, because th- that was actually his final role and they had to uh, CG finish his performance in that film. But nonetheless, he was very iconic in that. He was um, uh, Sykes in the 1968 musical Oliver uh, he was in some of the David Cronenberg films like The Brood. He's done some really cool stuff, and he's one of those classic character actors. He has a voice for this movie that's perfect. 
Like, I buy him as a Bond villain. It's kind of a bummer he didn't get to actually play a Bond villain. I could see him exactly fitting the mold of actually the Roger Moore ones, funnily enough. Yeah, like swap him out for like Christatos in For Your Eyes Only, and I think mm. it's a more memorable villain in that movie. But it, it, when he turns up on screen, the film almost has a bit of credibility going. Oh, yeah. He, you can tell he's actually trying. And he's got a menace to him. He does, and he has that... I don't even know how to describe his voice. It's very like... uh like smooth, but also kind of a little bit ragged, kind of a little bit. So you get that menace to it. And um, there's all these scenes where he's just describing his plans and he's spouting the most absurd dialogue possible. And I'm buying everything he's saying because he's just such a consummate professional. And I mean, you know, it's interesting to contrast him with Michael Crawford. They're both professionals in their respective fields of acting. They're both, you know, some of the best of the best. But you can see that like Oliver Reed really knows how to elevate this type of material. Whereas I feel like Michael Crawford can't quite crack it. Like this is definitely an Oliver Reed type of specialty is taking the absurd and just grounding it really well. Yeah, Michael Crawford's character saw Camp on the page. Oliver Reed thought, yeah. if they're going to have me do this film, let's, let's at least try. Well, like Oliver Reed was saying you know what, I'm going to make this character a convincing, you know, Roger Moore, James Bond villain. And I think he works. Yeah, I, I have almost no problem with him. I actually feel bad for him by the end of the film. Yeah, because you wish that... Do you mean feel bad for the character or the actor, actually? <laughs> no, I'm insane, so I felt bad for the character. I. Uh... Oh, the character, okay. I felt bad for the actor. No, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I felt bad for the actor. Like He's in that boat chasing uh, Woody, the Condor Man, um, having laser beams fired at him. And there's just a shot of him riding shotgun in the boat with uh, his his henchman who looks like Gary Mitchell. <laughs> and um, he, he just had a shot of him with this horrible helmet on, bumping around on this uh, soundstage, <laughs> just looking so sad. Oliver Reed gets home that night. You know, his wife's like, so what do you do at work today? He's like, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. <laughs> just don't ask. Just don't ask. And then she's like, I can't wait to see the movie. And he's like, we're not going to that premiere. <laughs> yeah, I buy that. I buy that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love Oliver Reed. Great to see him here. Wish he'd had more to do. What did you think of Barbara Carrera? An actress who, I mean, I really know her because of Never Say Never Again, where she's the femme fatale Fatima Blush. And she is a fierce, fierce, you know, actor in that film. She's chewing the scenery like crazy. It was very interesting to see her in a little more of a standard leading lady type role here as the agent Natalia. I think she does a lot to try and bring this, uh, to try and write this ship almost. You buy that she's a spy. You buy that. She's good in this movie. Like, I actually think she really does a good job grounding this movie. She's doing something different than what Oliver Reed's doing. Oliver Reed has that sort of, um, you know, thespian camp to the performance, even if he's grounding the material really well. Like, there is a certain heightened element to Oliver Reed, whereas I feel like Barbara Carrera was, like, buying the truth of who this character was. Mm -hmm. She understood who this character was and was doing her very best to give her performance. I mean, you could understand why the Condor Man character fell for her when he met her in Istanbul. She has that mystery about her. Well, you can see why she wound up eventually in the James Bond franchise. Like, she's a perfect casting choice there. Absolutely. It, it, it's a shame in a way that she was never in an official Bond film, if you're going to be that stickler about it, although I count Never Say Never Again myself. But um, she's great in both. 
And I, I loved her in this. Her and Oliver Reed were the two things that kept me going for the 90 minutes. Yeah, and she has that sort of like old Hollywood kind of glamour to her mm-hmm. that lends itself very well for this type of role. Like you totally buy her as like an Ingrid Bergman style like spy or something, you know, who's trying to defect. Like you totally buy it. And I thought that, again, like I would love to see her in a good version of Condor Man <laughs> or something better, preferably, I suppose. A- anything else, anything else. <laughs> In Men in Black 2, I'll take her over Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah, totally. And I feel like Barbara Carrera really got the short end of the stick on some of her big projects because Condor Man, you know, obviously didn't work out so great. And Never Say Never, um, again, is a movie that always has that baggage of not being an official Bond film, being kind of a weird movie on its own terms. Mm. And I feel like she deserved more of a showcase role because just from what I've seen of both, she could really deliver with the right material. And she never got that sort of like home run material to really elevate her the way that the way a lot of other actresses did at that period. No, exactly. And there's also the unfortunate point of a lot of the female characters at this point in time were always written to fall in love with the star quite early on. Yeah. And it is a real ask that we believe she fall in love with Woody. Yeah. I can kind of see maybe she wants, she likes the whole bumbling idiot type thing. Maybe she's into that. Heaven knows it's got me through 33 years. <laughs> Were you ever using the line, you bring the dip, I'll bring the Dostoevsky? <laughs> uh, that's how I usually open in the bars. And uh, that's when they walk off. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just think she she was such a great get for the film. And I'm glad they were, her and Oliver Reed were cast. I just, yeah, I just wish they were in a better film. I mean, you can understand why Disney hired them, though. Like, you hire actors like this to prop up a movie <laughs> that's goofy like this because you you want that legitimacy. You want to draw in um, adults to the theater who are going to enjoy those performances. Plus, Michael Crawford, while he does have experience, is an unproven lead in this type of movie. So you want strong support to really help lift him up. And I think they do their best. But that, that also begs the question, and sorry to go back to lamping on Michael Crawford again, but why did they hire him? I mean... Did he test well or something? I'd love to know. Because he's obviously got a great back catalogue of, of performances on West End Broadway TV. But nothing I've seen makes it sound like he's played a character like this before. Maybe just the fact that there's so many theatre-trained actors who cross over and are very, you know, important and influential throughout the, you know, the history of Hollywood. Mm that they said, well, look, this guy is the original Phantom. Like, this guy is huge. Maybe that can translate to movies. Um, And, you know, obviously, as I said, he's in uh, Hello, Dolly, which is a fairly popular movie. Maybe they just thought this was the next step for him. But, yeah, not the best choice. No, no. Um, Not the best choice in a lot of respects. Not the best choice of (laughs) film. Not the best choice of way to spend the afternoon. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Is there any other main characters you want to touch on? I guess we could talk about uh, James Hampton as Harry. Yeah, James Hampton, an actor, the second he walked on screen, I'm like, I know this man. Mm -hmm. I have seen this man, I'm sure, in countless 80s movies. He was the dad in Teen Wolf. That's where he uh, really jumped out to me. Right. I was baffled by this character of Harry because he's a CIA agent. He says just a file clerk. Fair enough. I kind of like the idea of going with the low-ranking CIA guy. But like... Is this movie trying to satirize the state of the CIA? Like, are they trying to make fun of the CIA for being inept? I could never quite tell because Harry, 
initially seems to give that off and his bosses are just like putting him in charge of missions and not seeming to care whatsoever and then giving him the company credit card yeah like do what you want like who does that that's a massive waste of like taxpayer money i imagine for the americans (laughs) no kidding but then like harry shows up later as their plan b to save them when they get arrested and framed um and he seems somewhat competent like it's not like Harry turns into this like bumbling fool in the field either. It's very weird. Well, uh, I would say the accent proves your point otherwise. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah, uh, I don't know. But the thing is that they've missed the mark in terms of when you would tell that story because the 70s were filled with spy stories that had to do with not trusting your government. You look at, you know, Three Days of the Condor, which they make reference to in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, because frankly, it's a much better film. And so, but they we're past that now. We're in the eighties. That's not really a hot topic anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's true, and I, that's why I was uncertain if they were trying to ridicule the CIA or not, because it doesn't seem like they commit to it really. No, no, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say, Cam. I, I, I still think I might be, you know, high on painkillers. <laughs> I mean, maybe they are ultimately that all of these missions can be solved by a comic book guy with a budget. Maybe that's just the ultimate damning statement on the CIA in this movie. Well, it just like, I would understand them saying, you know, here's we'll build what you want. I guess you could, you could sort of put Batman in that realm. Unlimited (laughs) money. You can become Batman, but you can't invent laser beams. Yeah. What was that all about? I I don't know. I, I didn't notice the laser beams on the car really until the second viewing. So when I saw them, pop out of the condor foil. I thought I was losing my mind. How has he got a laser beam? And why is everyone okay with this? That has to be the Star Wars effect, right? And the Moonraker effect? Yeah, yeah. Wait, Star Wars was what, 70-something? 77, Moonraker 79, and this is 81. And when was Empire? Uh, that is 1980. Right, so, okay, yeah. Uh, that makes total sense, then. They want laser beams, yeah. kids like laser beams. It is the most goofy-looking laser beam sequence, though. I mean, they have lasers on the car as well, but at the end when he's firing um, through the cannon on the back of the boat, when you see the long shots, like, that cannon is swinging around wildly. Because <laughs> 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 this poor stuntman has this, like, gun that's, like, attached to the back of the boat, and the boat is bouncing like crazy on these waves, and the gun is just flying all over the place. It's really funny to watch. It, it, but not in an entertaining way. That's what I want to express to the listeners at home. It's 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 cringeworthy almost. Well, it's very entertaining unintentionally. Like they weren't trying to make it look that bad. And this is one of the bits that, that get me with the whole Condor Man being this excellent spy. You know, he he's obviously planned this boat, and he's told them to build it. Okay, I can I can just about suspend my disbelief and understand that he's asked them to do that, and come up with a laser beam. But the fact that he's able to use it. And be like, he's, right, he's on the back of it, gunning like uh, Rambo. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. <laughs> like, that's that's why I don't understand this movie's shift in um, character depiction. It just doesn't make any sense why he's so competent at the end here. Maybe we just needed to strap on our wings, Cam, and just fly off the Eiffel Tower with him and, and just let him take us to the promised land. Maybe, maybe. Um, the only other actor I'll just touch on, uh, what did you think of Jean-Pierre Calfon? who shows up as uh, Morovich, this um, assassin with one silver eye. I thought he was kind of fun. It, it was like, you know, the 
ineffectual henchman character from some of the Bond films. You know, it, yeah. it was just kind of there. Not many speaking lines, but he was just kind of there. I, I noted down that he looked like Gary Mitchell, as I mentioned before. Uh, for those who don't know, that's from the original Star Trek because they had a, uh, I think it was a silver eye uh, in that too. Yep, yeah. that's right, yeah. That, that's all I really noted down. I mean, it was a bit outrageous that their hit squad drove Porsche 911s and, and boats. I don't really get that. You think they would just sort of infiltrate the town and kill them instead of this whole protracted car sequence. I did enjoy, though, that um, like uh, there was a lot of like explosions and deaths in this movie. <laughs> yeah, a lot of cars careening off the sides of roads and boats blowing up. I actually thought the car stunts were pretty good. Like that whole sequence with the Condor Mobile taking out, you know, those black uh, race cars. I actually really enjoyed some of those crashes. They were really well done. What in what universe did you ever picture yourself saying that sentence? I know, right? So strange. But I mean, Condor Man. Whenever they ask you to watch the stuff of him flying or going up those cables or even some of the boat stuff, it doesn't really work. It's a little sluggishly directed. I thought there was some actual like car gags in terms of the crashes and stuff that were really entertaining. I'm trying to think of anything more than just a couple of ones that careened off the side. The ramp was fun. (laughs) That was the most awkward looking thing when it just like it just CGs itself up and you just see the little eye holes where they're peeking through. That's the worst thing to drive. That wasn't CG, not in that era. That's like an optical effect or something. Oh, like the Martin McFly hand. Yeah. Right. A much better film. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I guess it was entertaining. I think I was just losing my mind slowly throughout this film. Totally understand. Totally understand. Were there any other things that jumped out to you in this movie? I suppose I've got like one thing to mention. Mm-hmm. When Woody was telling uh, Barbara Carrera's character of Natalia about the USA, he started listing off all these things that he sort of associates with America. I have a couple written down. I'm interested to know what you think is the best of America afterwards. Okay. So he finished off. I only managed to catch the last things. He finished off with senior proms and baseball. Baseball is very American. I mean, <laughs> I guess so are senior proms, but I'll take baseball over senior proms. So, so what's the Canadian version of that? If you're, if you're, if you've got Barbara Carrera sitting next to you in your bright yellow sports car, and you're driving around the hills of Italy, what are you telling her about Canada? Well, you're going to say hockey instead of baseball. Um, maybe curling would be in there. Is that your hair or? What's that? No, curling is a sport. Um, it's kind of like shuffleboard on the ice. And, and that's, is that what you do in your you know, day-to-day life? I don't, but my dad actually plays. Fair enough. And what, what else have you got? Um, I feel like a lot of Canada, people just refer to food items. You know, you'll go through the list of like maple syrup and whatever, mm-hmm. um, poutine. But uh, I don't know, like moose. Um, I'm trying to think. There's got to be something. I'm sure other Canadians are just screaming into their, you know, into their earphones right now, into their earbuds, I should say. But like, um, I'm trying to think of Canadian activities. I mean, I guess, oh, depending where you live, there's like a lot of skiing and stuff. But at this point, Barbara Carrera is throwing herself out of the car down the hill. Yeah, think... yeah. She doesn't want to come with you, mate. Maybe snowshoeing? Is that a thing in Canada? I don't know. You live there? I don't know. Well, I don't want to speak for all of Canada. <laughs> well, you do. I know, right? That's my, that's my unfortunate voice right now. <laughs> you tried at least anyway. You see, I've always said, though, I'm a really lousy Canadian because so many of the things that people tie to Canada, I'm not into. 
I'm really the wrong person to ask when it comes to like favorite Canadian pastimes because I probably don't do any of them. If it helps, Cam, I've always said that too. Yeah, I mean, um, and uh, you know, I just want to actually acknowledge a very British moment in this film, which is when the car sinks in the water and we get the dun 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 dun, dun. which of course caused me to stand up. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, it, was that a British car? It was a Rolls Royce. Okay, okay. That's what I thought. I, I, I didn't get it, though, because yeah. I thought they would have gone for the Aston Martin, because that's the Bond car. I thought that, you know, the, the DB9, or, sorry, DB5, I should say, um, the classic Sean Connery Bond car. They didn't. They went for the Aston, which is a weird choice. Maybe they couldn't afford one. I would put, uh, maybe. It was a classic Aston Martin, though. Anyway, not, that's enough car talk. But, uh, yeah, it was yeah. just, that was a weird scene. That whole, like, him landing, and why did he care about the car? They were running off anyway. I have no idea. That's the tagline for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of inexplicable moments, we have the disguises in this, and there is a point where um, <laughs> Woody and his buddy Harry go undercover as Arab sheiks. And, uh, well, that's the era, folks. Yeah, there's, there's not much we can say, and there's not much that this film can do to try and recover itself from that it's, it's pretty damning looking at it now yeah we should acknowledge this does come out the same year though as raiders of the lost ark where you have john reese davies playing an egyptian man so again very much the thing in the 80s yeah i, I like to take uh art as the time it came out so i'm not gonna lamp on it for doing it but i just think it is in poor taste now and important to point out as well that it's kind of like okay we would not do that now yeah my, my note was literally uh oh, yeah, yeah. That I, mine was the exact same. I wrote disguises. Uh oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, another another fumble. Yeah. Um, just a couple other really quick things I'll mention. Um, at the wedding scene where Barbara Carrera goes in and it destroys that man's marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no coming back from that, is there? No, there's really not. But that scene reminded me a lot of the auction scene in North by Northwest, so I appreciated that. Yeah, uh, robbing from a better film. Fine by me. Yep, and you had the like two old women fist fighting. That was kind of funny. I noted that down too. I just wrote two grannies at wedding. Lol. Yeah. Um, and then the other little thing I had written down was um, at the end of sorry at the beginning of the movie when you have the animated Condor Man. At one point, he makes the Goofy howling sound, where it's that like crazy like you always hear it when Goofy's falling off a cliff or something. Is that where that's from? Oh my god! I wrote down. I've heard this noise before. Yeah. So that's where it's from. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So that's just like a reuse sound effect, like the Wilhelm scream then. Yeah, it's like a little in-joke, I'm sure, because it's Disney making the movie and throwing in the goofy noise. I'm sure that was just kind of a little bit of a joke on their part. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And let's just close out these sort of moments to note with the fact that this movie ends with um, someone whispering in um, Woody's ear about another mission, and then he smiles, and we get a freeze frame. Did we, did we even get credits? Uh, I don't think we... Did we? I don't think we did. I didn't on my copy. It just said Condor Man and that was it. Yeah, because... A Walt Disney production. I got the pop-up on my... Because I bought it on um, Apple um, Rentals. And I got the... You poor thing. <laughs> well, it was a rental for like four ninety nine or something. But I got, the po- I got the pop-up of Would You Like to Watch Next during that scene. During that little bit at the end. So, no, I don't think there were really credits. They couldn't even be bothered. What did it? What did it recommend to watch next? Um, I think Peter Pan. 
Okay. I, I, I was hoping it would come up with a better film. I guess it did. I mean, Peter Pan, it's a man who's flying, so I, I guess. <clears throat> the only other thing I had that interested me to think about was the drink that he has in the Istanbul bar. And we were talking about this scene earlier because it's a flaming uh, alcoholic drink by the looks of it. And as he tries to put it out by blowing on it. And then he puts his hat on it. And I really wished his hat had set on fire. That's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, it felt like the, the natural progression of the gag. but Although maybe it was better because we didn't necessarily see where it was going to go. That's true. Uh, uh, yeah, subverting expectations. But my question for you, Cam, is what do you think is in that drink? I am the wrong person to ask. I don't drink alcohol. Um, Jeez. Oh, yeah. A, a little bit of everything? Well, I, did, I wasn't even necessarily sure it was alcoholic until I guess that's the only thing that can be put on fire. Yeah, I mean... Because you think, you think of Istanbul Express, you think like a coffee or something. Sure. And the fact that they're like, no one would ever have a double. And he says, I'll get a triple then. That means that it's so strong that you would never get a double. I don't know, Scott, what would apply for that? I mean, you're talking to a guy who hasn't also had any alcohol since a while. So, yeah, I'm probably the wrong person to ask to. Maybe it's like grain alcohol. Maybe. Well, yeah, listeners, write in. What do you think is a good alcohol to set on fire that you probably shouldn't have a triple of? <laughs> yeah, let us know so we can not try it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Cam, this film has been a, a bizarre trip for me. And I think it's time we put it to the test. Does Condor Man make the knock list? Clearly no. (laughs) (laughs) It's not much of a question, really, is it? It's not. It's a movie that, like, I I will say this. I would really recommend this to people. If you've got, you know, once COVID's over, you get together with a group of friends. um, Maybe there are some um, (laughs) drinks that you can't have doubles or triples of involved. Um, (laughs) And just kind of gather around and you want that sort of like that bad movie experience where you can all watch something and laugh and kind of joke about it throughout. And it's not going to be the type of movie that's painful to sit through. This is a great example of one because I actually think it's very funny, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but it will give you nonstop fodder. And because it shifts directions so often, mostly to keep a young child's attention span you never feel like you're just kind of milking the same scenes for prolonged periods of time. It moves around all over the place. It gives you all sorts of weird stuff. And uh, I think it would probably work for bad movie watching. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And the thing I, I marked down in my notes about my final thoughts is it doesn't have a bad intention in its body. They wanted a, a fun kids spy action film. And I think they kind of missed the mark overall in terms of the story of the plot but it, it's a nice film like it, there's nothing bad about it in this in this world of these grim dark stories that we get all the time and all the nonsense that's going on around us sometimes it is nice to have these light stories that don't really mean anything and it's very just like wide-eyed and optimistic it doesn't have any cynicism to it it's not going for like mean-spirited violence um it's just kind of having fun and being silly so it's it's not a movie i could ever imagine hating it's a movie that i actually had a little bit of affection for just watching just the days where disney made weird movies like this even if they weren't good um but you know it's it's not a good movie 
Especially, as no. I said at the top of the show, this is coming out the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark and Superman 2. Those are where movies are going, and Condor Man is very much a product of its time, if not a little before its time. Yeah, I think that, that pretty much wraps it up. I I would, again, much like yourself, watch this in sort of a bad B-movie kind of category. Yeah, like if you were with like a group, say, Scott, you and I are meeting up with some of our friends in Vegas, and someone was like, let's watch Condor Men, we would not be like, hell no, we'd be down for it. Sure, and it's if you compare it to what we've come across already, you think of like Jumpin' Jack Flash, Cloak and Dagger, and that more kid-friendly comedy section of spy films, especially around this era too. Um, it's not as good as Jumpin' Jack Flash, but Jumpin' Jack Flash wasn't that great. But it's not bad. I think I would watch this again over Jumpin' Jack Flash. You think? I think I would, yes. I would put Cloak and Dagger still above this one, though. See, I just think I found Whoopi Goldberg very electric in Jumpin' Jack Flash, and she would carry me through, whereas our lead in this film, for me, let me down. Yeah, yeah. Well, I totally understand that. This is not the star vehicle that um, Jumpin' Jack Flash was. Exactly. So, uh, and just to clarify, that's a no from me as well, if you didn't get it from what I just said. <laughs> and I guess that means that we have jumped off of the Eiffel Tower and one of our wings has broken. And as such, Condor Man is not making the knock list. In fact, it is plummeting into the river as we speak. <laughs> uh, so the dossier on this film is complete and a bit damp because we had to pull it out of the river. Really, really milking <laughs> these uh, Condor Man puns. <laughs> I, I, it's all I have left. <laughs> more, more comedy than the film has. It's going to be really appropriate when you keep making them throughout Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. <laughs> Still about Condor Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Condor Man references. Exactly. Yeah, that's what we like to see here. Um, before we talk about what we're covering next week, here's a quick message from a friend of the show. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm John. And we host the Beard Owl Podcast, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest things in the world, beer and Weird Al. And a bunch of other stuff. That's right. Do you like nostalgia? Do you like sibling banter? Do you like beer? Do you like Weird Al? Are you human? If you answered yes to any of those questions, give us a listen. Become one of our loyal commenters. That's right. That's the Beard Owl Podcast podcast now you know we are actively campaigning to have weird al yankovic do the theme tune for this show uh, because quite frankly it makes sense but uh in the meantime we recommend you all check out the beard al podcast that's right as good as the music was in condor man by henry massini i would be all down for weird al polka music throughout this movie it actually would have fit it very well it would have lifted the film so check out that podcast because, yeah, we're fans of Weird Al here. Alapalooza was a definitive record in my young life. So, uh, yeah, check them out for more of that sort of stuff. Great stuff. So, Cam, what are we looking at next week? We are wrapping up the Harry Palmer trilogy. Um, yes! <laughs> so we're going to be doing it in a little bit of a different way because the Harry Palmer trilogy wraps up with two TV movies called Bullet to Beijing and Midnight in St. Petersburg. Um, these movies are not super easy to track down, so it's not going to be our, like, our standard format, I don't think. We're going to be doing this more as a sort of look at the Harry Palmer trilogy. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to talk about these two movies, not as in-depth as we did for Condor Man, for example. <laughs> but we want to just acknowledge sort of the journey 
of Harry uh, Palmer across cinema. And we'll also be talking to a Len Dayton specialist as well about the Harry Palmer and how it's sort of translated from the books. So that'll be good. So check out Bullet to Beijing and Midnight in St. Petersburg if you can. They're not easy to find, but um, don't feel like you're going to miss out if you tune into the episode without seeing them. Yeah, there's a lot of films that we cover that it's kind of handy to have seen it first before we listen to the episode. But I think how we're going to present next week, you won't have to have seen anything. Maybe the Ipcris file might help or have an idea of who Harry Palmer is. Sure. Okay, so don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, I'll bring the dip. You bring the Dostoevsky.